And that our New Testament reading, which is interestingly between the disciples going out on their mission and coming back, Mark chapter 6 and verses 14 to 29, what King Herod heard was about King Herod reigned, and you got to get the geography here, King Herod Here's northern, here's northern Israel, where the Sea of Galilee is, and the Jordan River comes down, Dead Sea here. And this King Herod reigned in this area, and he reigned in this area to the east of the, of the Dead Sea. But for our purposes, he's up here, and Jesus has been ministering, and Herod hears about this Jesus. King Herod hears of this, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said... John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, he held the first view. John, whom I, had be, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What should I ask? She said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and they took his body and laid it in a tomb. A grass withers and the flowers fade away, brothers and sisters, but the word of our God stands forever, to which you say, Hallelujah. And now our Lord, come by the Holy Spirit and transform us by your word preached for the sake of our great King Jesus, confirming that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen. Oh, Amen. Please be seated. Well, now you have the scripture text and the place for your notes on today's sermon. Pages 5 and 6 should be a little bit easier for you, thanks to my pit bull for her recommendation on that. Back in uh, 2011, 
uh, right through 2019 on Sunday nights, uh, a series, uh, an HBO series called Game of Thrones captivated uh, the American people and others who, who watched it, the intrigue, the, uh, the assassinations, the, the murders, the quests for power, the exiles, the banishments, the uh, kind of um, pretty bad things sexually that happened, intermarriage, all, all of that was, was in this, this series that kept people riveted for years on the ends of their seats. Sadly, the ending of it was kind of disappointing for people, uh, but, but, the, but the intrigue was fascinating. Game, the Game of Thrones. What we're going to look at today in this text is two games of thrones, okay? Two games of thrones, and I guarantee you the intrigue in this non-fantasy, this, this true account the intrigue is, is going to vastly outstrip all of those seasons of Game of Thrones. But the parallel is exactly uh, what, what you would think it is in this text. So, so you've got your notes here. Let, here's what we're going to do today. Um, I, you, you, you've got to ask the question, right? Why, why is this here? You've got Jesus ministering up in Galilee, um, and, and then uh, you, you have he's sending out, he's extending himself, he's sending the 12 to go out. They're going to come back and make a report, and right in the middle of this thing is a flashback. Uh, you're going back to the arrest of John the baptizer. That was referred to in chapter 1 of the book, but it was kind of oblique. It was, he was captured. That was it. And this, this is a flashback telling you what happened, but you've you got to ask, why is this here? Why, why is it, it given at, at this point? And of course, see, this is the thing, not so much with this text, but with others, that makes critics of the Bible say, well, this, you know, this can't be a divinely inspired book. It doesn't make any sense to plop this story in it. Well, the fact of the matter is, all the manuscripts of Mark have that story in there, and yet it does make sense. You have eyes to see what it is. But anyway, that's the, that's the first thing you're going to want. We'll come to that later on. Why is this here? But here's the outline. Very simple, okay? Game of Thrones number one, <laughs> okay? Game of Thrones number one, and that's really the text that's before you. Then we're going to go back over parts of this text, because as you're listening to this, if you're at all familiar with Mark, uh, you're saying, oh, wait a minute, this sounds like something else to come. So Game of Thrones, number two. And then, number three, who won the game? Okay, who, who won the game? Uh, truth, brothers and sisters, is stranger than fiction. Um, I know that because I've been a pastor for 40 years. And truth is stranger than fiction. <laughs> but there is no, no more amazing Game of Thrones in this one. It really isn't. Okay. okay, so let's begin. Let's begin with, look at the text. Okay, so you've got the New Covenant reading of Mark 6. Um, and I'm going to begin with a little history lesson. I, I'm, I'm try, thankful I taught history for a couple of years, so I think I know a little bit about doing it, but I realize when you teach history, people's eyes glaze over, and I don't want your eyes to glaze over, so I will look directly at all of you so you don't fall asleep, but, but let's give just a little history lesson, and then you will get the picture here. This is about A.D. Anno Domine 31, about 31 years after the birth of Christ. We don't know exactly when Jesus was born, but we're looking at roughly that, that time period. And this King Herod is the son of the one we are most familiar with. And, and in the Bible, 
Herod becomes a metaphor, he becomes a picture or a symbol of hatred of the gospel. Uh, I would not want to be the Herods at the last day. I'll put it, I'll put it that way. Okay? And, but God chose, as God chose, chooses people to be himself. He chooses others for the exact opposite purpose. And, and so let's learn a little bit about the Herods. And all this is significant. The Herod who was alive when Jesus was born was called Herod the Great. Herod the Great. And he, by the order of Emperor Augustus, was called King of the Jews. Now, to keep this in mind, okay, he was called by, by, Emperor, uh, by, by Emperor Augustus King of the Jews. And he reigned between about 40 years before the birth of Christ to maybe uh, four years before the birth of Christ. He was around at the time that, that Jesus was born, but not, not for very long. Okay? Or he, was, he was there. He actually died, Herod the Great died a little bit before. Okay? And, and, and so you read, you, read of Herod, you read of Herod the Great in Matthew 2. This is the Herod uh, that is around when Jesus is born. It's toward the end of his reign. And remember, he is called by order of the emperor, king of the Jews. Now, see if this makes sense to you. Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, which was not really his province at that time, but, but he was born in that area, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, what? King of the Jews. And so here you have Herod, called King of the Jews, who is quite frankly paranoid. And if you had as wicked a life as he is, you would be too. I don't know how many different wives he had, but several, as you'll see in a bit. He... He was a very sinister man. He wiped out his opposition along the way so he could get his position and be nested where he was as the one who reigned over all of what we would know of as Israel in his time. And, and he, and again, toward the end of his life, he's paranoid. And when he hears this one was born king of the Jews, he's like, yeah? Well, well, don't you go find out where he is, and then you come back so I can go worship him too, Right? And, of course, the wise men don't, to warn not to. And so Herod, um, Herod decides he's going to practice infanticide. Bethlehem is in a, in a southern area there, not far from where he is. He finds all the children, the males that were born at that time, and he kills them all that had been born before, about two years before that, just to be sure he got them. Okay. So, so that, that is Herod the Great, really, a really not a good guy at all. Herod dies, and in his place, Israel is divided into four parts with three rulers. The, the area that we're concerned with is the northern part of Israel and the southeastern part of Israel. Okay, we'll come to that in a little bit. That's Herod Antipas. But the, the area that is main part of Israel, where Jerusalem would be, for example, he gives to his son Archelaus, Archelaus. And he is in the area of Judea and Samaria, and he reigns not very long. He only reigns until about AD 6. But when, remember when Jesus 
Jesus is born, his family goes down to Egypt, so he won't be wiped out with the others. Later, he comes back up, but the Lord tells him, no, 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 you're going to have to go to Galilee because Archelaus was governing in Judea. That was the son of Herod, and he was on just as much of a mission to wipe out opposition as his father was. And so there's where you hear about Archelaus. The northern part of Israel, where Jesus had been ministering, where the Gadarenes was, that was given to Philip. And we don't hear much. He's referred to in chapter 3 and verse 1 of Luke, but really for our purposes is not that important. But the one who is, who is given this area to the northwest, and this area, and this is very significant, this area to the southeast that butt up against a very warlike group called the Nabataeans, that is given to a man named Antipas. Think of Antipasto, but with an I instead of an E and no O at the end, and you got it, Antipas, okay? And with a T-O at the end. He reigned uh, until about A.D. 39. And he also was a really, he was a snake. In fact, Jesus, this is, this, this is one thing that encourages me when I, when I must admit, my attitude toward officials is not always what it should be. But Jesus was quite aware of Herod because Herod was the governor of the area in which Jesus was born and brought up. And at one point, he says, you go tell that fox because he was a shrewd, snake-like character. And he also calls him a wind blowing in the reed because he vacillated a lot, as many leaders do. So this is Antipas. Antipas appears here, but he also appears at the time of Christ's crucifixion. He happens to be, not up here, but down in Jerusalem. Pilate realizes that this Herod may know something about this Jesus that has been given over to him to be crucified. And so Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, and Herod, Herod's quite intrigued. He, he'd never seen him before. Now he gets to see Jesus. Well, I got the magician in front of me, and he says, basically, do it. Essentially, he says, do a magic trick, do a, do a sign. And Jesus says and does nothing. And so Herod finally gets his comeuppance and makes sure that, that Jesus is clothed as a king, so to speak, air king, dressed in rags, and sent back after he's flogged. And it's, it's interesting that Luke says, Herod and Pilate from that time befriend, became friends, the kings of the earth, taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. See how God is weaving the fabric of the Old Testament together. Okay, so here is Antipas, and he is a ruler up in Galilee in this area. Now follow me. Here again, Game of Thrones, okay? Herod comes to power, and he marries the daughter of Aratus IV, who is the leader of this Nabataean kingdom. Very warlike people. Why does he marry her? Well, it's an alliance. Because if he doesn't have some tie with this guy down here, this guy is going to invade what really is essentially one half of uh, Antipas's kingdom. Because Nabataeans are down here, they are basically surrounding this part of Antipas's kingdom. He says, I'll marry your daughter and all will be well. Okay, so the Game of Thrones again. So he marries 
the wife of, or he, he marries the daughter of Eratos the fourth, the Nabataean king. But um, Antipas was a man really driven by his lusts. And here's where the Game of Thrones would kind of come in here. His sexual escapades were well known. And he ends up being captivated by a, what apparently was a very beautiful woman named Herodias. But Herodias was the wife of his half-brother, Philip. Not the Philip that, that gained the territory here, or rather up here, but remember that Herod the Great had any number of wives, and Herod and Philip, so Philip was basically a half-brother because of another wife. He falls in love with Herodias. He divorces Aratas, which doesn't help the Nabataean king, and he marries not only the gal that was married to his half-brother, but she was also his niece. So she, he marries, because of his own driven lusts, he marries Herodias. But there's more. Herodias, by her first marriage to Philip, the half-brother of Antipas, has what apparently was a beautiful, beautiful daughter that we know from elsewhere was called Salome. And Salome is the dancer in this text. All right, so, so, that, so that's the background to this. I call it Game of Thrones Part 1. If I don't keep going, I'll never get done to the second Game of Thrones. But you've got, you got the point. for what, Okay, now let's go back to the text, okay? In verse 14, so here's King Herod. Now, interestingly, he was not a king. And it's going to play in a little bit later. He, it was a sticking point for him and for Herodias that the emperor would not call him king of the Jews, but Mark, for whatever reason, calls him that. It's kind of ironic, okay? He wanted to be called a king, so he calls him that. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Now, he is afraid of an insurrection. Remember that the disciples, who is this? He's got this power. And, and he is aware that this king of the Jews, we'll come back to that, is floating around somewhere in the horizon, and he is afraid that this Jesus might be the one who is, who is going to be his nemesis, because a king of the Jews was to have been born. So Jesus had become known. Here's the way people are talking about Jesus. If you could read the Galilee Gazette, then there's discussion of who this Jesus is. There were three different views. It's the op-ed column, okay? So op-ed column number one, who is this Jesus? Some said he's John the Baptist who has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Why? There was a view among the Jews that's rich with truth that when a person is resurrected from the dead that person has extraordinary powers. And we don't have to get into why that was understood that way, but that was a common belief among the Jews, and not all did, but the Jews who believe in the resurrection. When there's a resurrection, the person comes forth with special powers. And I don't want to be facetious, but, but it, you know, it's, a, it's a little bit like the, the stories in Star Wars or whatever, when, you, uh, when a person's vanquished, and yet they're glorified, and they're better otherwise. But anyway, so they're saying, okay, well... Because this is a flashback. 
You'll learn about John the Baptist and why he had died in a moment, but people are saying in the op-ed columns of the Galilee Gazette, one view said, well, this, this guy, this Jesus, it's got to be John the Baptizer raised from the dead. Then others said he is Elijah. Now, why that? Well, in the Old Testament, see, Elijah was a picture of someone who was to come. And as you end the book of the Old Testament, Malachi, Elijah is going to come. Okay, There's part of the idea of where resurrection would give added power. And in the early discussions in the Gospels, people are saying, is this Elijah? And Jesus says, yeah, this is the Elijah who was to come. And, and, and because, but he was Elijah with power, sort of like Elisha had. And so you've got this second group that says he is Elijah, and that doesn't comfort Herod at all, because Elijah was known as the troubler in Israel. He opposed the king at that time, King Ahab. And so this is going to... So on the one hand, you've got, here's John the baptizer coming back from the dead, and I put him to death, and he's going to be stronger than he was before. That's who Jesus is. Or somebody else says, no, 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 he's Elijah. And Herod is saying, that doesn't help me at all, because Elijah was a force against the king at that time. And the other was kind of innocuous. Another said, hey, he's a prophet. Just like one of the prophets of old. We did in prophets of old, you can do in this one. Okay, that was the throwaway view. But Herod hears it, and here's his conclusion. Because Herod has a guilty conscience. Remember, he had, it's a flashback. He had put Herod, he had put John to death. He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He had no basis for saying that, but he's scared. For it was Herod, now here we go, who had sent and Hear what this sounds like. Seized John, bound him in prison for the sake of, and that's what you read in chapter 1, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now this is when John was alive. For John, who'd been arrested by Herod, John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, I've got to park here for a bit. And I know pastors aren't supposed to intermeddle in politics. But this text intermeddles in politics. The Old Testament law had a standard. We can debate whether that's still supposed to apply today. I think it does. But, but the standard back then, Leviticus 18.16 and chapter 20 and verse 21, is you don't marry the wife of your brother or your half-brother. You don't marry your sister-in-law. And it was also contrary to marry your, your, your niece. You weren't supposed to do that. He was always break, but particularly here, he says to him, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now there is a view that says, I won't give you the technical name, the church must never address the state because the church is a special sphere, it's a sphere of grace, and the state is a common sphere our work is to preach the gospel, and our work is never, or very, very rarely, to address the state. That's definitely not John the Baptizer's view. And I dare say that is not to be the view of any responsible preacher of the gospel. John the Baptizer did what all faithful preachers have done in the past. They have been willing to expose national sins, if necessary, lovingly and firmly, to the faces of those who are committing them. 
And if a man is not willing to do that, that man tarnishes the image of Christ. Now, I want to give you two past examples and one present one of what this is like. And then, of course, you see the result. In, you talk about great games of thrones. I mean, Scotland had them. You, you, you had uh, Mary, Mary Tudor, who was Mary, I think she was Mary, Queen of Scots. Queen Elizabeth comes to power in England, and, and then Mary Stuart comes to power in, in Scotland. And uh, Mary Stuart uh, tried to play up to the Protestants in Scotland, when in fact she was a Roman Catholic, and she wanted Roman Catholicism brought into Scotland. And John Knox was a preacher, and he basically said, no way. He upset the Marys by his writing the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women, which didn't make either of the Marys or Elizabeth very happy. And then when he found out that Mary Stuart in Scotland was privately having masses, John Knox said, I'm quoting him, he said that one mass is more fearful to me than if 10,000 armies had landed in our country. Uh, he, he, he just Now, here's what's interesting. Mary Stewart was fascinated with John Knox. There were several court appearances. We only have his record of them. We don't know whether to believe that or not. She, even though she was a dedicated Roman Catholic, she wanted to know why Knox so firmly opposed idolatry. And he told her, you allow idolatry in this country, God's going to judge us. He's going to destroy us. He would bold in his preaching. Another, and, and people claim this is not a, a, a correct example. I've read both sides of it, but I'm going to assume that it was, okay? Uh, Samuel Davies was, was in, the, in the 1700s, probably one of the finest preachers and evangelists in the United States. He was a Presbyterian. He ministered in Virginia. And about the time Whitfield was around and others, he was one of the Great Awakening preachers. And he was a, apparently a very powerful preacher. And uh, he had gone to England to raise funds for an orphanage or whatever it was that, that they had to build. And um, he has an opportunity to speak in the royal court to King George, not the third. He was the one that the colonists would tangle with a few decades later. But his father, George II. And in England, established church, you've got a, you got a well-known preacher. You, I mean, you've got Billy Graham coming. You've got to have Billy Graham speak, right, publicly. And, and so Samuel Davies speaks in, in this royal court. And this is a very, and I'm not mocking this. Praise the Lord. I think this is wonderful that he does. And right in the middle of Davies' sermon, this would be the equivalent of leaving your phone on in worship, Okay. He starts, King, King George II starts to whisper to his wife. Actually, he was praising the preacher. He couldn't get over the oratory. Samuel Davies stopped. I doubt he would have yelled this, but this is what it's recorded that he said. When the lions roar, the beasts of the forest all tremble. When King Jesus speaks, the princes of the earth should keep silence before him. That's preaching. That's not a Joel Osteen motivational message where everybody laughs and claps. This is King Jesus. And what is recorded is that the king wanted to speak with him afterwards. 
And he, was, he, he apologized for what he did and gave him some money for the mission in the United States. I wonder what the Pope said to Joe Biden after he was elected. You want to bet whether he said to him, you're a Roman Catholic, you know our standard that abortion is the killing of the unborn. You're going to be faithful to your faith. You do everything you can to stop it. Do you think he would have said it? I doubt it. How many do you think would say it? Okay, so, so here, now this is why I emphasize this. If John had been just nice, he would have had a very fine funeral at some point. But that did not set well. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife with Herodias. Now Herodias, who was basically the, the Jezebel of the, of the New Testament. And in the same way she connived to, to have Naboth put to death, so does Herodias. She didn't like John at all. She wants to put him to death. But she couldn't, for Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. That describes the response to preaching. Why is it that people who hate the gospel will still listen to a sincere, earnest preacher? I don't mean a kook who screams. I mean a preacher who opens up the word and lovingly and boldly applies it. Why? Because there's an Amen Charlie inside of them that says, you know what, they're saying is right. Conscience, accountability to God, a holy God, a God of grace. He's being honest about Jesus. But you can hear sermons, folks, and not be changed by them. And see, that's Herod. Herod. Herod loved to hear sermons, but he wasn't changed by them. Now an opportunity comes when Herod on his birthday, and Jews did not like celebrations of birthday, they didn't like Herod for a lot of other reasons, but Herod on his birthday gave a banquet. Now notice this is a stag party, folks. His nobles, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee, they're all there for stag parties, no Herodias present. When Herodias' daughter came in, this is Salome, and apparently she was very beautiful, and she danced. And folks, this is not a square dance. All right, the dances at these parties would make lap dances and strip teases seem pretty tame. And you can imagine these guys, they got this beautiful gal there, basically doing whatever they want because she pleased Herod and his guests. And so the king, who no doubt is under the influence of the drink, says, you ask me whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Big liar, just like the devil to Jesus. Bow down to me, I'll give you these kingdoms. He didn't have that authority. He didn't have that authority because he wasn't the king. You see, sin will promise you all kinds of things it cannot keep. And so Herodias, believing what... Uh, her uncle is saying, goes to the mom. What do I ask for? Herodias is all ready for this one. I want the head of John the Baptist. So she comes to the king, says, give me at once the head of John the Baptist. On a, notice, notice the insult on a platter. It's a banquet. It's gonna, this, is adding, this is really adding insult to injury. And now the king is trapped. Sin, folks, always entraps you. And because of his oaths, 
And because of his guests, they heard him say this. He didn't want to break his word to her. See, the fear of man always brings a snare, and he's trapped. So, king says, let's be done with it. Sends an executioner with orders to bring John's head, beheads him in prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl. And the girl, what a girl gave it to her mother. Man, I tell you, I wouldn't want to be married to her, would you? <laughs> really bad stuff. Game of Thrones had a lot of bad stuff in it. And let me make an application to today. Not a politi- It's going to sound political, but it is. Swamps, folks. Swamps are really nasty places. They are really nasty. And we're not just talking about the United States. We're not talking about one party or another. All parties have them. Every government has its swamp. And here's its swamp. What is this picture? Let's look at Game of Thrones number two. As you go on in Mark, and I could do this with Matthew and Luke too, but we're doing it with Mark because we're in the book of Mark. Verse 19. Um, Someone had a grudge against John the baptizer. As the religious leaders in chapter 14 of Mark, they had a grudge against the Lord Jesus, and so did the people because Jesus didn't measure up to them as what they expected to be a king. Jesus really got it, because he wasn't the kind of king that the people expected. And then, exactly the same language is used of John, in verse 17, seizing John. Same language for the guards, seizing the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, now we're down to verse 20, is brought before Pilate. And Pilate, too, is greatly perplexed. Why do they take this pathetic figure and regard him as king of the Jews? And why doesn't he answer me? It is Pilate who is perplexed. And Pilate does not want to have Jesus executed. He doesn't have Herodias for a wife, but he has the religious leaders and the fickle people, and they want Jesus crucified. And so the king is exceedingly sorry, but he has to give Jesus up to be executed. See, vacillating, vacillating leadership. Jesus dies. Joseph of Arimathea requests the body, as the disciples did. And he took his body and laid it in the tomb. Mark is saying in this Mark and Sandwich, look ahead, folks. Look ahead. Look ahead to the Lord Jesus. Now, that, that brings up this question. Who won these games? Two games of thrones, Herod, Pilate. Who won these games? Let me tell you about the end of Herod, Herod Antipas. Not Herod the Great, the Herod who reigned up in Galilee. It was not too many years later, maybe at most three or four. And the king down in Nabatea, Aratus, remember Aratus's daughter, 
had been divorced, and that was basically you were you were a piece of a trash if you were divorced. And you don't trash the king's daughter. And so Aratos decides he's going to marshal his troops, goes up to the southeastern portion of the kingdom of Herod Antipas, and guess what Herod loses? Very quickly. And then he must make a trip to the emperor Caligula, who is really a study in nuttiness. You didn't want to appear, be like appearing before Hitler at his last days. The guy was nuts because of his sexually transmitted diseases. Herod must make a trip to see Caligula, in which he says, uh, I want to become king. And Caligula has already been warned by Herod's nephew Agrippa that you'll read about in Acts. This guy's plotting to take over this whole area. He lost down here. He ain't going to lose up here. And Caligula rewards Herod by banishing him where he dies. It's interesting that Herodias went with him, but he's banished. Be sure your sin, particular sin, will find you out. It's going to happen. And pride goes before destruction. The end of Pilate is very interesting. Pontius Pilate. Pilate was a spastic kind of a guy. Uh, He would vacillate as he did with Jesus and then he would do something and he began to, whether mental illness or whatever, he began to really overreach. And at one point he slaughtered a group of Samaritans up in the middle portion of Israel. And interestingly, the Samaritans had a right to protest and they did. And Pontius Pilate gets called to the Roman emperor to give an account for what he did in the emperor's kingdom. And we don't know what happened in that trial. What we do know is shortly afterwards, Pontius Pilate committed suicide. It was probably because the emperor said, "Uh, you either do yourself in or we'll do you in. The way of the transgressor is hard. And remember, Pilate had heard that that blood of Christ for his execution would be on the heads of those who executed him. And, and Christ's blood was on the head of Pilate. What's the end of John? I don't know how Jesus could have said it because he was on earth, but someone would have. The instant John was beheaded, he would have heard, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. A burning and a shining light for a time, but he burned and shone as he would. And what about the end of Jesus? It wasn't the cross. All those accounts of a resurrected person who would be more powerful than he was in life, they had their roots in truth. And Jesus not only died and disarmed the devil on the cross, but he was raised so that John the baptizer will be raised from the dead too. And all those who believe in the Lord Jesus, because he, brothers and sisters, here's the lesson. He's the great king. Not this Herod that was called that. Not this Herod that wanted that. Jesus, who is that. And here's what's glorious. King Herod said the second one, or the one that thought he was king, Herod Antipas, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. 
Jesus says, I'll give you my whole kingdom. Amen. See? And brothers and sisters, we've got to remind ourselves of these things over against the myopia that can bring us such discouragement. Why then is this here? Disciples are sent out mission. They're going to report back after this account of the burial of John the baptizer. Why? Number one, in the midst of Christian discipleship, there's death. Doesn't mean for everybody, but for not a few. That's why we pray for the persecuted church the way we do. Okay, in the midst of discipleship, brothers, there's going to be death. And in the midst of mission, there's going to be martyrdom. Be faithful to the Lord, and there'll be all kinds of opposition. Our light, momentary affliction is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Well, we don't look at the things that are seen like a prison, but the things that are unseen, the things that are seen, they're temporary. Diseases, prisons, knives, beheadings, they're temporary. The things, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We walk by faith, not by sight. And brothers and sisters, we have to remind ourselves of that over and over again. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith in what God has said. The sufferings of this present time, not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. I could imagine John, when he saw that knife getting ready to come his neck, if he had that text, he would have said it. Sufferings of this time, not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed in us. Or the cross before the crown, right? It's always the cross before the crown. That's what that mark and sandwich teaches. Mission, mission, and then death. The cross before the crown. Because the king of kings, folks, he's always going to get his victories. Amen. He always will. Amen. It was the morning of February 12th, 2015. 21 men that are dressed in, in orange suits, the suits of the prisoners that, want, that are worn at Guantanamo Bay. 21 men are marched to a secluded spot on the southern Mediterranean seacoast. And they have been captured, captured by ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq, to avenge the death of Osama bin Laden and some of his other followers. This group expresses its hatred of these who are clothed in orange, calling them the people of the cross. And they are, all 21 of them, beheaded in an instant on that beach on the southern Mediterranean Sea, to which the black-dressed executioner says, this filthy blood is just some of what awaits you. In the video of these 21 Christian martyrs is released. Let me tell you the rest of the story. It wasn't 21 Coptic martyrs. Coptic is Eastern Orthodox, and these were genuine believers in their Lord. That's why they were held captives. Only 20 of them were committed Coptic Christians at first. 
we found out later that another man was a black man who was from Ghana. His name was Matthew Ayariga. And for all we know, when he was imprisoned by ISIS with these 20 committed Christians who would be martyred for their Christian faith, Matthew Ayariga was not a Christian. But he watched these 20, and he was changed because of the lives of those 20. He did not have to be beheaded with those 20. But he said to his captors, their God is my God. Hence, 21 who were martyred on February 12th 2015. Why is this here? In the midst of mission, martyrdom. But what is martyrdom? And I'm not taking it lightly. It is because of the power of Christ. And incidentally, this comes with martyrdom that comes with ministers and others on the front lines who help people with COVID-19. It doesn't make any difference whether it's a sore or a virus. That means a quick entrance to glory. Because that's exactly what Jesus secured. And it's a reminder, brothers and sisters, that in all of the swamp and all of the intrigues of life, of which you get a a very vivid part in here, never forget that it's always Jesus, always Jesus, who wins the games of thrones. Let's pray. And now, our Lord, we pray that you would seal these words to our hearts. Oh, God, Lord, it's the story, but it's a true story. And it it really is a microcosm of the story of history. Please don't let us become discouraged or despondent or disheartened. Lord, certainly despondent when John the Baptizer was beheaded. I'm despondent when Jesus was crucified. And yet, Lord, don't let us be myopic. Let us have that long-term vision in which we see that in all, all of these things, your people are more than conquerors through him who loved us and who loves us. Amen.